Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. Today we are here with Anusha Ravikmar, uh, and we're interested to find out what Anusha is working on. So Anusha, please tell me and Laura uh, what program you're in, what year you're in, and what you're studying. Hi, uh, good evening. I'm Anusha Ravikumar. I'm a second year PhD student at the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and I work on stars. Beautiful. Um, uh, here on GradCast, we talk a lot about like uh, different types of studies. Stars, I think, is something that most of us know what they are. Whereas <laughs> a lot of people start off with something and instantly we have to go, what is that? Uh, I don't have to do that with stars. I do know what stars are, but um, can you please tell us what exactly are stars and how do how does that maybe relate to what you study? Awesome. So um, from any scientific perspective, in general, we call a celestial object as a star when the core of the object is continuously fusing hydrogen to helium. That's what we technically call as nuclear fusion. So any celestial object that's fusing hydrogen to helium can be called a star. And um, from a very simple point of view, we go out um, and just look at the night sky and we see so many beautiful little dots in the sky. But if we stand there for a while and you know closely look at the uh, these bright dots in the sky, we'd definitely be able to see slight color variations in them. Some of them appear really red in color, some are slightly bluer, some are yellowish white, our sun is yellowish white in color for that matter. So um, there are different categories of stars and they are divided based on this color. So what I work on are the really massive stars ever present in the universe and they are called as the OB type stars. Um, so these stars appear bluish white in color and they are about say 20 times the size of the sun. So, um, so what I work on specifically is that a small subset of these stars uh, form a beautiful ring around them and we have no idea why that ring is there. So all my research is dedicated to understanding and characterizing that ring. That's like a great introduction, Anusha. Uh, but when you talk about these rings that some stars have, do all of them have it? And what is this ring made of? Like, do you have any clues on how is it formed and what, what is it in the first place? Yeah. So. Uh, to start with, actually, many people do not know that stars have these kind of disks around them. So if we go and look at a school textbook, stars are generally like spherical mass of plasma, that's all. But there are some stars that have really beautiful disks around them. And this disk is usually present around the equator of the star, most of the cases. It's very rare that the disks will be oriented with a specific inclination angle with respect to the star's rotation. Actually, it's very rare. In most cases, the disks or rings are equatorial. And the kind of disks that I work on are usually made of ionized gas, the same kind of material that stars are made of. So uh, these category of stars that I work on are called as classical BEAE stars. 
so the letter b and a stand for the type of the star that i mentioned earlier the most massive stars in the universe and the small letter e next to it will represent the emission line that is formed out of this disk so classical is just a name classical b or a type with a emission line that's why it's called as classical b a stars now this disk composition is usually hydrogen and there are traces of metal like helium um iron magnesium in small amounts but the key question is we don't know how they are formed or why only a small number of stars have them and why the other stars don't have a ring around them so i really hope to find an answer <laughs> interesting i mean i'm i guess i'm imagining something that looks kind of like what we see saturn looks like in textbooks but but uh, but instead of made of whatever saturn is made of it's made of star material is that am i thinking of the right thing yeah okay okay interesting i guess uh, is any are are any of these stars like close enough that we could like go to them and like take a sample or something <laughs> or is this just a, a completely no, no, crazy no. idea I mean, with I mean, the closest star Proxima Centauri is itself not in a reachable distance. And I mean, the kind of stars that I work on are on average close to solar neighborhood. But I mean, in a universe scale, this is a very closer distance. But with respect to travel or collecting sample, no, they are not close enough with, with the technological advancement that we have right now. So that I guess that uh, that that builds off my my question is if if you can't go and touch it with anything, uh, what what tools do you have to <laughs> to determine what is happening with these things? Like in in terms of material, you're talking about oh they're made of hydrogen, helium. Like how do we know any of that? <laughs> That's a remarkable question, actually. So with respect to astronomy, uh, we study the universe, and the most powerful tool in the whole subject is light. So basically how I work is there are lots of telescopes around the world. I write proposals to telescopes and ask them to observe specific targets in the sky. So they, depending on the distance, they look at the same target for a specific amount of time. They collect the light and disperse it. So when the light is dispersed, we get a spectrum like the same as how rainbows are formed from the sunlight and water droplets in the atmosphere. So the dispersed light can be plotted as wavelength versus flux. And that is how we know what kind of species are present in the surface of the star. So Anusha, in order for you to study these rings, are you studying the light that comes from the star or do, they, do their rings have their own, they emit their own light? and then you're studying that light. So the rings or disks do not have their own source of light. So the star is very bright. And even if we want to see the ring, the starlight will completely blur off the field. So we cannot clearly see only the disk of the star. That's not possible. But the cumulative spectrum of the star really gives a crucial key out of this. So any star spectrum, will have only absorption line features in them. But a star that has a comparatively cooler ring around it will 
show emission lines in the spectrum. So that is why the name has a small e in it, B, E, or A, E type stars. So the emission lines are formed from the disk of these stars. So it's like we're seeing uh, like a blank, a blank page, and then we see some lights, and uh, I mean some some lines that are kind of darker, and then from those lines we expect that there are the rings, and based on the on how light or bright or which kind of color they have, you make uh, inferences about which compounds or like what type of atoms exist on that okay. ring. Is that correct? Yeah. So specific elements have specific features. So we have an atomic database already well studied. So for example, um, the hydrogen Balmer series, like the H-alpha line, always forms at 6563 angstrom. It does not change its wavelength unless or until the object is really far away. So uh, for stars that are very close to our sun or present the solar neighborhood, the H-alpha line will always be at 6563 angstrom. So whenever we see an absorption or an emission line at that particular wavelength, we for sure it's hydrogen. Um, I guess uh, maybe this is a naive question, but like I'm thinking if I look outside um, and I want to see something and I'm thinking maybe it's like really far away, sometimes there's like a few things that get in the way, maybe a tree, there's a couple branches, a couple leaves, or like maybe even um, a window that I can see through, but it's kind of distorting where the light is coming from, or um, you know how it looks. Like it might be tinted, so like a like a like sunglasses, it might look darker than it actually was when it came from the source. Um, how do we know, or uh, even if you knew, what what's the likelihood that that the light you're seeing from any stars is actually hitting something on the way before it gets to you and that's changing the data that's a great question so this is something associated with the fundamental property of light itself um, light always travels in straight lines so no matter at what distance the object is the photons are going to travel definitely in a straight line. Now, in case if the photons encounter an object in its path and get scattered, then we are going to completely lose that photon. It's not going to be on our line of sight. So stars are technically point sources in the sky and our telescope systems really focus only on the object through a very, very narrow slit. So scattering from other directions is very unlikely. I mean, there is definitely a little bit of the extinction, loss of light, then uh, perturbation effects due to the Earth's own atmosphere because we can see wavy patterns in our light. But all of these things are corrected and then the final spectrum is analyzed. So right now, all most of the telescopes around the world are very advanced to do these kind of corrections by the telescope's own pipeline. So whenever data is collected, these kind of corrections are immediately applied and the corrected data is released to the observer. So these kind of corrections usually are not present at the moment for majority of the astronomers who are collecting new data. Okay, so cue the rid ridiculous question then. It, could, it, could it be that... Um... Uh, somewhere in the distance of universe, there exists a, a corner 
uh, which, which I don't know what it would possibly be made of, but around this corner, we, we, light doesn't travel for us. But uh, next to this corner, there's a massive uh, interstellar mirror. And around the corner is where the star is. And what you're seeing is a reflection off that mirror. Okay. Is, is this possible? <laughs> I mean, I know that you don't physically, we don't physically know, but what I'm saying is, is it possible that actually when we look out and if I just point and say the star, if I were to track, if I were to able to just travel in that direction, I'm going to hit that star because I think it's coming from there. Is it possible that it's actually not in that direction that we're seeing yes, light is, didn't derive yeah. from that direction? Yes, it is possible. So uh, these kind of effects are present for objects that are at cosmologically very large distances. So um, a couple of minutes ago, I did mention that light always travels in a straight line. So with respect to space, the nature of the path that photons take is highly dependent on the space-time. So we could imagine the space like a 3D mesh. And the more heavier objects we put in it, the more bent we can see around the object. So any light that travels close to the object will also be bent. We have these concepts called as Einstein rings and cross. These are just reflections of the same object that's seen two or three times in totally different directions. But all of those are just reflections and the original object is actually behind a very massive object in the same line of sight. So these are really remarkable discoveries that has happened in the 1990s. Cool, uh, Anusha, that's super, super interesting. And now I'm wondering, okay, did, how is the life of a modern astronomer? I'm pretty sure you're not looking through a telescope. You're not looking at light because uh, you have eyes and your eyes have evolved in certain ways. You probably can identify some wavelengths, some others you can't. So uh, what is it that you look at and how are you able to analyze? Because I can imagine that there are like tons and tons of information that are coming from the space into these telescopes. And in order for you to get uh, information out of it, I, I am wondering how, what, what's the type of data that you deal with and what do you do to analyze it? Okay, so um, on, on a very broad perspective, um, data in astronomy is, I mean, particularly with stellar astrophysics in general, will be either spectroscopic or photometric or polarimetric. Then there is spectropolarimetry, spectrophotometry, so just combination of these things. So each of these are just different methods of acquiring data. Now, if we look at an object and we collect the number of photons emitted by that object every second, that's photometry. Now, if we disperse that information through a prism, that's spectroscopy, to be correct. And there is also polarimetry that determines the magnetic field inclination with respect to the line of sight. So there are different kinds of data we can acquire. And the instrument specifications highly vary depending on what data we want. So we have to be clear about what we are looking at, why we are looking at, and how we are going to look at it. These are like the three essential questions one has to know when trying to observe these stars. Now, in order to analyze it, I usually, uh, what I do is I get the process spectrum. Process spectrum, I mean all these atmospheric perturbations, then the interstellar effects are all removed. 
and then I get the stellar spectrum for my analysis. So the first thing I do is I try to identify the line features present in the spectrum. So I get a spectrum ranging from say 3,900 angstroms to 9,000 angstroms, the whole stretch. And there is little bit of um, near infrared component and most of the visual wavelengths are all in there. So I already have an atlas with me with all the line features. I sit and manually look at the line features and see what elements are present in the spectrum. And once that information is there with me, I further use Python or MATLAB to do statistical or comparison characterization analysis or population study, whatever you want. I guess quick, quick aside, um, you know, you were measuring, you said you were measuring photons, which I'm guessing is the like molecule that, that lights are, lights are made of. Light packets, <laughs> yeah. Whatever, whatever light is made of, photons kind of sounds like lighty. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you then you met, you said the, the units you, you mentioned were angstrom. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what's an angstrom? Angstrom, I mean, uh, it, it's easier to imagine this way. We all know how, how much length is a meter scale. So mm -hmm. an angstrom is 10 power minus 10 meters. Oh, so it's like, it's like a teeny, teeny, like microscopic yeah. ruler. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's like, a yeah, I can, I, I hear my angstrom. I'm thinking like a, a really small measure that I would take with a ruler, yeah. but for like, mm -hmm. um, micro tiny, tiny, way tinier <laughs> subatomic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So what you have is tiny measurements, right? Like numbers at the end that those are tra mm -hmm. translated to numbers. So for each wavelength we have. A number of photons that's all so imagine the y-axis is the total flux coming from the uh, object and x-axis is the wavelength teeny tiny numbers so this plot is the goal i see uh, and and just to be clear i i, I i'm not sure i'm not sure if it if it applies in every circumstance but i hear wavelength and i'm thinking that relates to color is that like you, a Correct. certain when you when you, you say i have another a number of photons at this wavelength what you mean in colloquially, we would mean you have another number of uh, a number of photons in that color. Yes, that right? correct. Okay, You're right. And so, you, uh, a, a star okay, that yeah. appears very blue in color will have more numbers at the lower wavelength regions, and a star that appears redder will slightly have more number in longer wavelength regions. So, these are all correlated with one another. Very cool. Okay, so now that we kind of understand what you're looking at and uh, how you analyze this light. Let's go back to the rings on the stars. There are, there are stars, these stars have rings and you want to know what are those rings made of. Uh, do you have any previous idea of how they are formed? Are there any hypotheses? And how are you expecting to use this data in order to answer these very important and basic questions out of the formations of, of the stars? Awesome. So, um... Now I mentioned about these disks present around B type stars and classical B stars, right? So how the sequence of stars will be is like the most massive O type stars, then there'll be slightly less massive B type stars, and then even less massive A type stars and the sequence goes on. So O type stars are the largest and bluest and hottest. And as we keep moving across uh, to lower temperatures, we have redder, cooler, and smaller stars. So um, the B-type stars were the first kind of stars where these 
discs were identified for the first time. And those disc stars um, also have like a small tail. So any distribution if we take will just be Gaussian in nature, right? Likewise, a small number of slightly cooler A-type stars also have such rings around them, but comparatively smaller in number. These stars are smaller in size, slightly cooler than B-type stars, but they also have small number of stars that have disks around them. So these stars have never been um, characterized or identified before. I mean, the literature knows that classical A stars exist, but no one has uh, specifically looked into those systems and you know, tried to identify why does the B phenomena end at this type? Why not the other cooler subtypes are not having these disks? So my project specifically aims at answering this question. I completely look at AE stars and I try to model the central star characteristics and try to correlate them with BE stars, which are already well studied and identify what's the difference between the disk formation mechanism in these two systems. So um, if you, if you take the current idea, uh, I, you said there's not there, you know, it's not really well known what, how, where these rings come from, but mm -hmm. If you take it, the one of the hypotheses that you might have, that somebody might have, one of them, and you take us through the like the birth of a star. Um, presumably, there is a time when stars like come into existence with the molecular way with helium and hydrogen molecules, something like you said. Take us through that. You know, the star is born, and then how might it differ when it, it might decide, for lack of better words, not actually deciding, but like what's the the process where it might change and go okay at this step it will you know have a ring and then if it if if it doesn't something doesn't happen then it won't have a ring it, where's the the decision point there well you're asking the whole key question of 100 years of research by now on these these stars so uh to answer precisely we don't know yes but of course we don't know so what's the idea? If, if you so the overall idea. idea is like all of these are main sequence stars, which means their cores are constantly fusing hydrogen to helium. That idea is clear. Now, um, when these stars evolve in the main sequence, so when they stay in the main sequence and after a certain number of years, the amount of hydrogen in the core is depleted and the stars leave the main sequence. So throughout this span, they are going to have this disk around them. The interesting feature is these disks are transient in nature. So these disks disappear and reappear in time scale of decades. So, um, so initially, like say for example, 15 years ago, there was this interesting uh, idea that there might be a binary star next to these stars, which is trying to pull matter out of the surface of the star that is formed, which is, a motivating reason to form such a disk makes sense but we sat and checked into each of these systems uh, theoretically it gives a good binary fraction but we don't observe enough binaries to explain the presence of the number of disks we see so binary hypothesis may be a reason in some stars but not in all of them oh. so the only um, common feature amidst all of these stars is that all of them are rapidly rotating. A normal B-type star without a ring would be around, say, 15 kilometers per second. But these stars 
are rotating at starting from 250 kilometers per second to some stars are as high as 440 kilometers per second. Wow. So rapid rotation could be a reason, but it does not sufficiently explain the formation of disk mathematically. So there are like a number of hypotheses that says, um, you know, there is this property called as pulsation, where a small parts of the surface of the star go up and down, like how drum behaves when we beat. So those kind of regions could have smaller gravitational field, and that could be a reason why matter is getting ejected from the star surface. And then there is this binary hypothesis, then there is magnetic field. So stars are made out of plasma and it's full of ions. Magnetic field lines could help, you know, um, transport these ions from one point to another because electric and magnetic fields are, you know, they go hand in hand. Um, then there are stellar winds, just like our sun has these beautiful um, ejection of coronal matter, other stars will definitely have winds as well. So none of these hypotheses 100% explain how these disks can be formed. Now we've done enough of modeling now, and right at this moment, we are trying to observe as many stars as possible and get all the information and statistically correlate and see which phenomena is the um, strongest and which one is influencing the most in a given time in a star's life. Yeah, I'm thinking there could not be just one explanation. Um, I don't know. I think that sometimes humans are very, get really obsessed about like finding finding one answer to to a thing that we notice, and then the universe and everything is way more com complex and more uh, interesting <laughs> than we can put on a single equation. And probably there there could be because I I don't know how big this could be, but I'm also imagining you said some rings have different atoms on them, right? Like they are made of different things. So I'm wondering if even the surrounding uh, context of the star, like which kind of uh, matter, matter the star has around, could that maybe influence the formation of the ring? Or I don't know, like um, how old they are. <laughs> if it, Like if they were formed at the very beginning of the universe or later, in time in the universe will that influence because there were more like i don't know i don't know that much about how the story of the universe was formed but like i can imagine that uh it'll be it'll, it'll be like a long path and hopefully like hopefully you'll get more answers but hopefully you'll also find more questions <laughs> like phases are also about creating about creating more questions and not always opening doors, but <laughs> creating more doors. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, I'm really impressed at your uh, uh, breadth of knowledge about stars. You know, we asked uh, weird and wonderful questions, and and you and you seem to actually have a quite quite a deep understanding of everything we've asked so far. So it's quite a quite impressive, actually. Um, well, where did you first learn all of? this stuff like what what where did your interest come from um i mean it's it's similar to how most kids feel like when you're about three or four years old and you go to your parents and ask them what are these small dots in the sky why am i seeing the moon this way so it started like that and i to be honest i i had a really supportive family and amazing physics teachers 
those were very crucial for sustaining in science fields because the work itself is very challenging and if we don't have a supportive environment it's going to make it even difficult to survive here so um i mean starting from simple questions then one led to the another uh, i mean teachers in my undergrad classes identified that i have a deep curiosity for space for some reason and they gave contacts to go and meet people in different institutions one thing led to the other and here I am well i'm i'm really pleased that you uh, were provided all that support for all those years and you know foster your passion really it's, it's, it's incredible to see someone so passionate about something um if somebody wants to uh find you on the internet and check out what you you know how you're displaying that passion on a day-to-day -day basis uh, where can they find you uh you can find me on twitter under the handle name hustling stars sweet excellent uh we'll we'll uh, we'll have that link in the description thanks for coming on anusha thank you so much it was really fun having this conversation excellent this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame, and my co-host was Laura Baina. Uh, we've been speaking with Anusha Ravukumar, and this episode was produced also by Laura. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in the show, you can contact us by email, gradcastradio, oh, sorry, <laughs> that's old email, gradcast at sogs.ca. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Gradcast Radio. Um, you can listen to us on the radio, Radio Western, 94.9 FM, and uh, wherever podcasts are available, Podbean, iTunes, Spotify. Um, also, all our webs all our um, episodes are archived on our website, gradcast.ca, and select episodes are in video format on YouTube, also at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening, and have a great night.